From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, the story of one of the first Coloradans to die of COVID-19. He just started to cough violently and couldn't stop. 87-year-old Mike Farley of Denver was an attorney and philanthropist with a passion for affordable housing. In the span of just 10 days, his health deteriorated. He was hospitalized, separated from his family, video chat only so as not to spread the virus. And I said, oh, Dad, I look forward to FaceTiming and seeing you tomorrow morning. And he said that he didn't think that was going to happen, but he, he hoped so. That was the last time we spoke. A family blindsided by experiences they'd never contemplated, let alone planned for, but a family still able to find gratitude and even laughter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Nearly 70 Coloradans have died from COVID-19, according to the state's latest tally. What they and their families have gone through can look very different from the dying process in normal times. Patients are often hospitalized without the comfort of family visits because the disease is so easily spread. If they succumb, funerals look different because large gatherings are banned. Today, one family's experience, the Farley family. 87-year-old retired attorney Mike Farley of Denver died last week from coronavirus. His wife Nancy, daughter Maggie, and son John joined me by phone. I want to welcome the three of you, and I'm really sorry you lost Mike. I have to think this is really still fresh. Yes, it, it, it really is. <laughs> yeah. So Nancy and Maggie, you're together at Nancy and Mike's house, and John, you're in Boulder, and I understand this is all due to self-quarantining, Nancy. Yes, I am quarantined because of Mike, of course. My quarantine ends today, April the 1st, April Fool's Day. April Fool's Day. Maggie, how are you holding up there with your mom in the house? Oh, I'm fine. Both of us are healthy. And this is the only place I want to be right now. What makes you say that it's the only place you want to be? Oh, I couldn't imagine being home. I lived outside of Washington, D.C. And I just couldn't imagine being quarantined there. And knowing that she was grieving alone here and having to do everything that you have to face after death. So I'm just really glad I'm here. Even though she won't let me hug her, she's making me stay six feet away. (laughs) Well, once a mother, always a mother, right? Looking out for the kid. John, how are you doing in Boulder? I'm doing fine. Feeling just fine. I also have been quarantined um, for the past two and a half weeks which is also completing today, April 1st. All right. So Mike practiced law. He loved classical music. He was an avid reader. I understand that he had a passion for helping the less fortunate, especially those experiencing homelessness. I'd like each of you to share a favorite Mike Farley anecdote or story. Uh, Nancy, why don't you start as his wife? Well, let's see. Mike was an Irishman. He was stubborn, but he was also so kind and so giving. And he worked on housing for about 30 years through the Archdiocese of Denver. And that really was his passion. He loved to drive by the sites that they had built and see families out in the yards playing. 
So my dad had a really stubborn sense of justice. You know, he fought for low-income housing in Denver. He really pushed his own law firm to diversify itself. He pushed to bring in uh, lawyers who were Jewish or lawyers who were women or lawyers who were of color way back in the 60s. And his law firm, Holland and Hart, took a case all the way to the Supreme Court that ultimately mandated court-ordered busing in Denver. Um, but when I was cleaning out his desk this week, um, I found another symbol of his stubborn sense of justice, and that was a parking ticket that he's been fighting for three years. He <laughs> 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 felt like... <laughs> Uh, he felt like it was not fair, and so he was not going to pay it. I think what comes to mind is growing up in Park Hill and making the trek down to visit Dad for lunch. And we would do this in my teens with some frequency, and we, we typically would always go over to Duffy's Bar and Grill, which was about a block and away from Dad's office, and then we would walk to 16th Street Mall and what happened just amazed me because dad couldn't walk but 10, 20 feet at a time without someone saying, hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Hmm. Hi, Mike. Nancy, when did the illness come on? It was early March. We were watching a movie with friends at our house. And then all of a sudden, he just started to cough violently and couldn't stop. All of us in the room uh, looked at each other and were a little, well, we were extremely worried. We thought, oh, my goodness, maybe this is the dreaded virus. So our friends left immediately. You know, Mike finally calmed down a little bit later. But from then on, his cough just got worse. He developed a slight fever. We called the doctor. The doctor had him come in and prescribed antibiotics for him. He came home and he just didn't get better. So the next time we called the doctor, which was about five days later, they said, please take him to the emergency room, which I did. And that's the last I saw of him. That's the last you saw of him. In other words, you drove him... That's the last I physically saw of him. Uh We were able, though, because of the kind nurse She was able to teach him how to FaceTime on his cell phone. So all of us were able to connect with him that way. He had never done FaceTime before. So our whole family was able to connect with him. He was even able to talk to his grandchildren, which he desperately wanted to do. Nancy, help us understand why you couldn't go into the hospital with him when you had delivered him there. This is, I think it's Um, Swedish. When I took him in... We were given a mask, and he was admitted at the desk. And then I was waiting in the waiting room with a few other people. He had already been taken in. And then a little bit later, the people came out, and they said, we are clearing the waiting room. You'll have to go out, and you'll have to wait in your cars. So that's what I did. They were afraid, I gather, of... Any well, it, coronavirus you know, spread? Well, just at the beginning of all of it, Ryan. Yeah. I think people were, you know, minute by minute finding that they had to apply new rules to everything. So you went and you waited in the car. And how long did you wait in the car? I waited in the car. It was a snowy day, too. 
I waited in the car for probably an hour, and I just, I, I didn't know what to do. So I went back in, and I said, what is going on? Finally, somebody did come back and say, we're admitting Mike to the hospital because he has bilateral pneumonia. This is an illness that's so commonly associated with COVID-19. Yes. So then I went home, and a little while later, he called me, and he was desperate to have some books because he only had 20 pages left in the book he was reading. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I brought three books to the hospital for him. I can't remember which book he was finishing, but the one that he wanted me to bring was called Bishop's Pond. (laughs) The Ship's Pond. I'm Googling it as we speak, Nancy. It's probably a mystery. It sounds like the newlywed game. You're guessing at what he would have been reading, right? (laughs) He loved mysteries. He loved Daniel Silva. So you were all able to connect with him over FaceTime. You didn't get to see him once physically, once he was in the hospital. John, what do you remember about some of those FaceTime interactions? Well, when he realized that they were going to move him to the ICU isolation unit, they were talking to dad about the need to hook him up to a respirator or to get a lot of oxygen into his system because his levels were falling very dangerously low. So he and I connected about this news, and he explained to me that he didn't think it was good news at all, um, that it really means that we need to say our goodbyes just in case. And so we did. Uh, This was probably, Brian, an eight, 10 minute FaceTime exchange. It was very difficult to see him through FaceTime struggling to breathe while he so desperately wanted also to talk and connect and tell me how much he loved me, how much he wants me to look after my mom how much he loves my sister and her family. So that was the end of the call. And then Sunday night, so a little bit more than 24 hours later at 9.45, we had a five-minute exchange that things during the day started really good where his oxygen levels had crept back up. And then they really started to drop off at the end of the day on Sunday and he reached out and, and said that he really didn't think he'd be around tomorrow. And I said, oh, Dad, I, I, I look forward to FaceTiming and seeing you tomorrow morning. And he said very directly that he didn't think that was going to happen, but he, he hoped so. That was the last time we spoke. You know, just from my conversations with physicians, this too is very characteristic of COVID-19, which is this almost roller coaster of improvement and decline and improvement and decline. It strikes me that what, what's so cruel about that is it's an injection of hope and then, you know, followed by the lowest of lows, the disappointment. Yes. He clearly had a sense of the way things were going. And he said, this is not the end of life situation I hoped for. This is really hard. And He said he felt like his life was complete, but he just wasn't ready to hand it over yet. He did make a very brave choice in the end. Um, He 
chose not to be vented, not to be put on a ventilator. Oh. Um, I think that he just knew that the outcome for for people in his situation at that age, and he had a little a bit of an underlying lung condition anyway, was not good. Maggie, I, I wonder if he refused the ventilator also in part because he thought that care could go to someone else. Was that at all part of his decision making? There's so much talk about that right now, you know, about who gets what. It would be totally like my dad to make that decision in order to open up a ventilator for someone else. Hmm. But I think we regard it as a gift to us, actually. I think he was envisioning a future when he would come home and just be stuck on oxygen and be kind of a burden to the family and not be able to go anywhere. And he just decided he would rather have a better life rather than a longer life. I think what's particularly awful about this situation and that I have to think will be repeated for other families is this idea that you can't be by your loved one's side. I have to tell you that on Monday when he died, I thought it was a tragedy. I mean, even though we got to listen to the last rites over the nurse's phone, I felt so sad for him because he was essentially dying alone. And I know he didn't want to. But today, I actually feel like we were very lucky because a week from the day my dad died, the number of cases in the United States have gone up five times. So next week, it could do that again. And at that rate, there'll be a million cases by Easter that we know of. And as those cases rise, the nurses just aren't going to have the time to make those phone calls to loved ones. Um, And there aren't going to be a lot of ventilators for people. There's not even going to be equipment, maybe, for the doctors and nurses, and they could end up victims themselves. So there's going to be a whole lot more people dying alone. And there are going to be a whole lot more doctors and nurses who don't have masks and gloves if we don't fix this. And I think that is absolutely criminal. We saw this coming, and we were utterly unprepared. So last rites were administered over FaceTime. Do I have that right? Just over no, just um, uh, lamp, or telephone, yeah. Uh, no, no FaceTime. Yeah, audio. What was that like? It had a surreal quality to it because it was happening over a phone. And what I remember most is a, a reaching, a grasping through the audio to connect with dad which was there, but it was very, very difficult. The connection I felt and I'm most appreciative of and grateful for was was with mom and Maggie and her family, my wife. And I could feel all of this breathing, talking, being on the line together. And that brought great comfort. And I just projected and and hoped that the projection of, of that, that dad truly felt it and knew it. I think he did, hmm. but I found it to be uh, yeah, a very surreal experience to, uh, to say goodbye that way. You know, I think we've all become really hypervigilant about what we touch, what we're exposed to, who we're exposed to. Do you find yourselves racking your brains for how he caught this, or is that a fool's errand? I have lain awake at night going over in my mind when I saw my dad if I could have given it to him. I was doing a lot of traveling and I came here and visited. And when I was talking to my dad and my goodbye call, I said, dad, if I gave this to you, please forgive me. I was trying to be so careful. And he, he absolved me. I mean, that was a real gift. And he said, you did not give this to me. It doesn't add up. 
and I could have gotten it anywhere at the doctor's office or at the grocery store. We've all had those dark moments wondering where he got it and if we brought it to him. Are you, are you being kind to yourself, Maggie? Well, I think it's a question we can never answer. Uh-huh. But the important thing to me is that, and you know, so characteristic of my dad, that he forgave me and he tried to talk me out of it. I'd like to end on, a, I don't know if I can call it a happier note, but a different note for sure. You had an Irish wake for Mike Farley the other night. I, I don't actually know what an Irish wake is. My, my, my Irish stepfather would be absolutely mortified to know that. But will, will you please explain what an Irish wake is? I think you did this via Zoom to connect everyone. Explain what that is and set this scene for me. Um, John, you want to take John, that? John, why don't you? Yeah. John, why don't you tell them what an Irish wake is? Well, I'd be happy to try. Um, (laughs) um, I think that the best way to describe the Irish wake is that it's an all-out celebration of one's life that, typical to the Irish, has great amounts of laughter, great amount of crying, and a very funny dark humor. It's a, a blunt humor. And it rolls around between family members for hours. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So the Zoom Irish wake that we attempted was absolutely wonderful in that we had Farley's from Oregon, Farley's from Montana, Farley's from Wyoming. Everyone's recollections were beautiful because they're so different and a lot of fun and a lot of tears. My favorite line at the wake came from my cousin, Justin Farley, who said, this is the first wake I've been to that didn't require pants. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks to the three of you for joining us. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm really glad for your memories. Ryan, can I say one more thing? Oh, sure. When we asked my dad what he wanted for his birthday or for Christmas, he would always say... You could always say, all I want is love and a few kind words. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, He is getting everything what he wanted in abundance. Maggie, John, and Nancy Farley, remembering 87-year-old Mike Farley of Denver, who died last week of COVID-19. We'd like to put the Farley family story into some context. So CPR's health reporter, John Daly, is going to spend just a few moments with us. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. I want to note, first off, that this story touches you personally as well. Yeah, that's right. I've known the Farleys since I was a kid. My brother took piano lessons from Nancy. John and I have been friends since we were kids. We were on swim team together. We were high school classmates. We played soccer together. And I have really fond memories of seeing Mike after games or at community events. Just a, a wonderful, warm, caring guy. Always had an encouraging word. Well, I'm sorry for your loss as well. How do you think this story underscores the many things we're hearing right now about this disease, COVID-19? Well, two things come to mind. You know, it highlights the situation in hospitals due to restrictions to visitors, people who are getting sick often can't see families. And sometimes that means family can't be there when they pass. Also, this virus is so infectious, so easy to pass along, and with it out there broadly in the community now, there's no way to tell if someone has it. 
Many people may be asymptomatic. They don't have symptoms, so people can pass it along unknowingly. And this is why distancing is so critical right now. Yeah, absolutely. This is the one thing everyone can do in their everyday lives, and they must do. And we're seeing signs that it's taking hold. The governor held a press conference Monday saying the number of people driving has dropped considerably, and they expect to see the impacts of social distancing and measures like closing restaurants and bars and schools and limiting gatherings, that that will bring Colorado's transmission rate down. And if, if that happens, it'll undoubtedly save countless lives. And if we don't, the potential is absolutely there that this virus will just roar out of control, swamp our healthcare system, and cost many more lives. And you know, Ryan, as you heard, Mike Farley was very much a community-minded guy, and he provides a, a great role model. Think of your family, your friends, your neighbors, the healthcare workers out there, the broader community, and heed that guidance to stay at home avoid close contact with others outside it. You know, the health experts and the governor, they're saying this will make all the difference. John, thanks for being with us. You bet. John Daly, reporting remotely, because we're keeping our distance here at CPR News as well. He's our health reporter and a friend of the Farley family. It's spring. Usually that means Colorado's slopes would be packed with spring breakers and Coloradans looking for fresh snow and warm sun. But mountain towns were among the first and hardest hit by coronavirus. And the ski industry was among the first closed by Governor Jared Polis. That is already adding up to big financial losses. CPR's new business reporter, Sarah Mulholland, is on the line. Sarah, nice to welcome you to the airwaves. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, Let's hit a couple of the key numbers here. How much do ski companies stand to lose? So the National Ski Areas Association has estimated that ski areas nationwide could lose as much as $2 billion in revenue in 2020. Uh, And that really depends on whether this uh, crisis drags into next season. Um, One industry official that I spoke with noted that season pass sales are already suffering um, because those sales which start in the spring um, are being hit because nobody wants to buy a season pass when they're not even sure when the mountain is going to be open again. That makes sense to me. There's so much uncertainty, both sort of personally, economically, and as we're hearing for broader industries. You've published a story on this at CPR.org. Give me an example of how this affects employment at these resorts? So Loveland Ski Area, they had 500 employees at the beginning of March, uh, 500 full-time employees, and they were down to 80 um, as of last week. So yeah, you can really see just how steep and and dramatic and fast this is really hitting these areas. And um, Loveland Ski Area is one of the top three employers in Clear Creek County. So that's really a big hit for them. Yeah, I also think about just the cost of living in some of these mountain communities, which can be astronomical. Healthcare is often more expensive as well. Uh, We'll point out that 
Loveland is not one of the biggest ski areas in terms of employment in Colorado. Um, obviously, it's one thing for business revenues to drop quickly, but uh, the employees at all of these ski areas took the first and probably toughest financial hit. So w- what did you hear about that? Well, so the general manager at Loveland, um, he said that they're re- really trying to take care of their people. Um, for example, they had a lot of leftover food uh, that they won't be able to use because the resort is closed and you can't sell that back to the producers. So one thing that they've done is they uh, invited all their employees to come to the resort and go through the refrigerators and, and just take everything they need to bring back as, as care packages for their families and community. You know, we can talk about the ski industry, but that's not monolithic. You've got ski resorts, you've got ski areas. What aspects of the industry are most jeopardized by these losses? So most of the big operators, uh, the people you think of with really vast holdings throughout the country um, and even throughout the world, uh, probably have decent cash reserves on hand to be able to get through uh, get through some difficult times. But it's the smaller operators that will really have the biggest struggle. And especially if you think of some of these really small family-owned resorts, um, and there still are quite a few of them out there that could really, really feel this. And I know that the industry wanted some help from Washington. What, what precisely was the kind of help they were looking for? So they wanted to spend lease payments that they make to the U.S. Forest Service for the use of government-owned land. So last year, just to um, put this in context, uh, those fees amounted to $55 million paid to the Treasury, um, and that's for the entire country. Uh, so about half of that came from Colorado Resorts. So that's a, that's a pretty big chunk. Um, so Senator Cory Gardner had backed the plan, um, but so far they have not gotten that relief. Okay. And why not? Well, uh, it's hard to say exactly exactly what Congress was thinking, but um, some arguments could be uh, these fees are calculated monthly um, and they're directly tied to revenues. So that means lift tickets, ski lessons, food and beverage sales on the mountain, all of that kind of stuff. So when nobody is coming to ski, those fees drop drastically because the resorts aren't making any money. Um, so, you know, the next step in logic is, well, that means they're not going to have huge monthly lease payments as long as the resorts are closed. Mm. Um, and then another thing is that Colorado has had a lot of great snow this season, record setting snow, um, and that's led to a booming business for the ski resorts. So presumably, especially some of those, uh, bigger guys that we referenced earlier, um, Presumably, that gives them something of a cushion, at least for a little while, to are, be able to weather this. Are there other sources of help that business normally gets in a situation like this that yeah, are well, or aren't? Yeah. yeah. So interestingly, um, typically, insurers are on the hook uh, whether there's some kind of natural disaster or the like. Yeah. But insurers, and, and yeah, so insurers, and this is true for a wide range of businesses. This is not just the ski industry. Um, this is being felt across the board. So insurers explicitly exclude pandemics from their business interruption coverage. So the ski resorts and many other businesses as well won't be getting any assistance from their insurers to cover losses. 
Just briefly, ski industry leaders say they'll ask Congress again when the next round of funding comes up. Uh, Why, if they're already paying the government less, do they say they need that break? Well, they say they want to maintain their staffing, both for preparation for next season, also um, in anticipation of the summer tourist activities, festivals, mountain biking, etc., For example, Telluride CEO Bill Jensen points out that they would typically be preparing for a busy um, festival season right now. But the first festival of the year, the Mountain Film Festival, has already been called off. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, Telluride Bluegrass Festival, which is one of the highlights of that area, um, that hasn't been called off yet. It's a little later in the summer. But it's really tough to end up what to say what's going to end up happening. And um, certainly there's going to be a lot fewer visitors when the warm weather starts. Thanks so much for being with us, Sarah. Thank you. Sarah Mulholland covers business for CPR News. The list of things parents worry about because of the pandemic is long and growing. From kids out of school to jobs and financial security, CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine checked in with experts for ways to keep parent and child anxiety in check. Tenley Williams says adults don't do well with massive uncertainty. Add to the mix children's uncertainty, and a lot of Colorado homes now have a lot of anxiety. Her six- and nine-year-old keep asking when they're going back to school. What's the plan for summer? It is extremely difficult for them to understand, like, well, you're not going to be at school before April 17th. But you might not get to go back that day either. Scott Cypers is seeing several types of more significant anxiety responses to COVID-19 in his practice. He heads up a depression and anxiety center at the Anschutz Medical Center. Cypers recently hosted a session on parenting during COVID-19 over Zoom. First off, parents need to take care not to create anxiety in their children. Don't continually point out dangers. Oh, stay away from that person. Did you wash your hands? Don't touch the doorknob. All these things that are true, but we need to balance that with not only what's wrong and what can go wrong, but with what fun they can have. What good will happen today? Another danger, parents who pretend that there is nothing wrong. You're going to hear a lot of people tell your kids, assure them they're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. But assurance actually in an anxious brain stopes it. Try not to give them assurance. Just say, we're doing all we can. We are working on it. We're trying to make things right. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Cypress says COVID-19 is actually helping children learn to deal with adversity in an age where snowplow parents are prone to clear the path of any adversity. But do watch for signs of overstress. Isolation is dangerous for anxiety and depression. Cypress recommends parents reach out to friends for emotional support and be specific like, can I vent to you for 10 minutes? It's also important for parents to model how to deal with stress. If you say, don't be on your phone, don't watch movies, we want you doing painting or other things, but then you're on your phone relaxing... How is that sending the message of what's really important and valuing? Cypress says, talk with kids openly about how this is a really hard time. Many of your high schoolers are not going to prom, are not graduating. They've lost a lot of things. Give space for yourself, too, to talk about the lemons, to vent about them, to share that this sucks. I don't want lemons in my life. And to balance that with how can I deal 
and go on and make some lemonade. Talk to your kids about how the stay-at-home order is going for them. Solicit feedback on how the family is operating and what can be tweaked. Shauna Fritzler has had lots of talks with her 15-year-old daughter about how easily the virus spreads. That's because... A whole bunch of her friends are posting pictures on social media of going to parties and sleepovers and all that kind of stuff. So that's hard. (laughs) She's had to explain that their house follows science and the stay-at-home orders. Dr. Amy Lopez, who also works at the Anschutz Medical Center, says lots of parents are struggling now because they've set an impossibly high bar for keeping children engaged. It is okay for your kids to be bored. In fact, there are some real benefits to boredom. It's where creativity grows. It's where problem solving grows. Their boredom is actually not your problem. She also says it might be a time for an honest discussion with your boss about expectations. You know what? I'm probably not going to be as productive. My kids are at home. And not only are they at home, I am also trying to teach them. So I am trying to be a teacher and a cook and a referee while I'm also still trying to do business as usual. She says parents must manage, even lower their expectations. What are you putting on yourself that you actually don't need to? She says it's not the time for perfect parenting. Just because some kids might be doing homework every day, great. Some kids might be on YouTube the entire four weeks. And you know what? They're all going to be okay. You do what you can do as a parent and what works for you and your family. Lopez tells the Zoom audience four-year-olds laugh about 600 times a day. Adults about 15 Maybe kids know something we don't know. The biggest antidote to fear, she says, is fun. Jenny Brandine, CPR News. Jenny, I'm so grateful for that story. It's such a good reminder that it's okay to be bored. Okay, we need to flesh something out in our feedback segment loud and clear, or maybe flush it out. A contractor gave us some advice Tuesday not to flush paper towels down the toilet. That's if you find yourself without TP as you self-quarantine. And that's a solid tip. But several of you wrote in to push back on the flushability of so-called flushable wipes, saying that they're anything but. So we checked with one of the state's mega systems, the city and county of Denver, which is urging residents to flush only human waste and toilet paper. Everything else, be it Kleenex or so-called flushable wipes, should be bagged and put in the trash. Okay, after a break, we'll put a little foolishness in this April Fool's Day. Lord knows we could use a good laugh. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The coronavirus has turned life on its head. And we're here to help you handle it. Hey, I'm Sam Brash. And I'm May Ortega. And we have a new podcast full of ideas for how to live during these strange times. It's called At a Distance. Sometimes it'll be serious. Sometimes it'll be fun. And every time you'll get useful tips and tools about how not just to survive, but maybe even thrive. At a Distance, your guide to life in a pandemic. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier in the show, we heard that even during a family's darkest chapter, the loss of their dad and husband to COVID-19, that there was room for humor. Laughter can be medicine. And so given that it's April 1st and that we could all use a little levity, we've invited two Colorado comedians to join us, Nancy Norton of Boulder and David Rodriguez of Fort Collins. They share the distinction of having performed both in our annual Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza and hello, you two. 
Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Ryan. It's nice to hear your voices, <laughs> if not to see you. How are you holding up? I know you both have kids, and so being stuck at home for weeks might not be a cakewalk. Nancy, how are you holding up? Well, you know, I have it pretty easy. My son is 15 and wants nothing to do with me. <laughs> so, it's a breeze. It's a breeze over here. Actually, we've had more engagement the last couple of weeks than we've had in the last year. It's actually been really nice to connect with my son again. A friend joked that this is quarantining, spelled T-E-N. T-E-E-N. Yes, quarantine-agers. Quarantine-agers. David, your kiddos are younger, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, their birthdays are actually this week. They're turning 5 and 10. Oh, tell me about self-quarantined birthdays. Uh, well, it's gonna it's gonna be a Zoom meeting with all of the family. I think <laughs> we had planned. They had planned to have a bunch of friends at you know a jump park or museum or something, and everything that we thought of and or brainstormed is is closed. So I have a feeling that you're your, your, gathering. Your here. home probably looks like a jump park, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's, I'm I'm currently upstairs in the hallway on the phone because they've taken over the living room for a giant Lego project. <laughs> um, I don't have to just imagine, though, what your homes sound like, because we have sound. This is apparently the sound of Nancy's household right now. What? That's game one. How's that woman? What's that about beating me? Thinking it's sweeter? Because <laughs> you were getting really cocky making fun of my lazy eye. I think I heard there that your son is making fun of your lazy eye. That doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> and is that the sound of ping pong? <laughs> we, we, yeah, we have a ping pong table in the garage, and it's been it's been a godsend. We we yeah we can banter back and forth with you know it's you know, you gotta have you gotta have a little game talk out there and. When I when I whiff it, uh, there's a reason I have no depth perception. But other than that, but I can still beat him. I just want to say that out loud and proud. <laughs> and there are no consequences for him making fun of your lazy eye. I don't remember you having a lazy eye, Nancy. Well, oh, you don't. Well, sometimes I can pull it in if I have enough Earl Grey tea on board. I can draw draw it in. No, she's a she's a drifter. She's it's a side effect of the Easy Bake Oven. <laughs> and then was there there was music in the background is someone playing guitar in that scene well i i actually created a little wave file for you that was overlaid with all of his electric guitar practicing that he's been doing since so that's you know i, I that's a little challenging but he's actually pretty good so it's, it's fun he's playing all the songs from my generation which is hilarious like what Oh, like ACDC, Thunderstruck, and Sweet Home Alabama, and um, he has a couple of original songs in there, so it's it's pretty fun. Okay, David, let's play the sound of your sequestration. Reflect on that, that sound was... a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I told them, I was like, hey, I need a recording of what it sounds like in our house. And that's what they were already yelling as I was running the phone. Uh, and so I that's when, <laughs> that was one one big shove at the end there. And that, that was the scream for my daughter. That's probably it's probably easier when they're when they're against each other. It's when they're on the same team. 
when it gets difficult. <laughs> when when they band their forces together, they can get pretty much anything done that they want. I like the idea of a parental technique being to sow divisiveness among the children. Yeah. <laughs> Isolate, and yeah, it's easier one-on-one. Okay, on this but, April uh, Fool's Day, we are getting... Just a little comic relief from two comedians in Colorado, Nancy Norton and David Rodriguez. This isn't a very funny question, but I am curious what COVID-19 means for your gigs. I know that artists of all kinds have been hit hard financially because of this, Nancy. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Lost all the gigs uh, for the next two to three months. May is still... Uh, no, May's gone. I think June, there's one in the middle of June that, that was a big one for me that is still sort of floating out there. Mm. But they're talking doing a virtual. It's a conference because I do keynote talks as well as stand-up comedy. So this is a big conference in Chicago that they're like, maybe we will do a virtual meeting. We'll see. Uh, so I I just purchased podcast equipment. Yeah, me and everyone else. We're all starting our podcast right now. <laughs> okay. Virtual, virtual comedy shows. This is this has gotten you into the podcasting gig. What whose dog is that I'm hearing in the background? Oh yeah, that's my dog. Okay, so She's that's barking out the window at the outside world. That is also the sound of your self quarantine, uh, Dave. I know that you had opened a comedy club, I think, in Fort Collins. So this must be a a particular challenging, a particularly challenging oh. time. Well, thankfully, we have not opened doors yet. Um, we had been, we had like negotiated all the way down to signing a lease on a place and that fell apart at the very end. And so we were regrouping and trying to find a new location when this all sort of happened. So we thankfully had not signed anything and we didn't have to, we have, we don't have to deal with that. Um, I just have a live show every week, uh, at the Colorado room up here in Fort Collins, just on their back patio. They've got a stage there. Uh, and so in the wake of that not being an option anymore. Like they're still open doing to go food and, and drink as far as I know. Um, but obviously we can't, you know, have more than a couple people there at a time. Uh, so I, we, I, for some reason I, I have the image of you doing takeout comedy. Like you could, people could come up to a window, <laughs> order a joke yeah. <laughs> six, six feet from you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Behind, behind some glass. Yeah, uh, Sure. No. Uh, well, so what, what happened is a couple of producers in Denver uh, started a Twitch channel to host streaming shows where comics call in and do comedy from their homes to a live Twitch audience. Did you say Twitch? I'm so uncool. I don't know what Twitch is. I'm, <laughs> I'm such a... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a website that you... I mean, you can just go to twitch.com and... Everybody who wants to can start their own channel and they can stream whatever they want. There's people that play video games and do commentary. There's people that play chess and do instructional videos and stuff. And we're hosting comedy shows at God. Hold the Phone. Okay, let's let's share some jokes that you've recently written and are radio appropriate before we go. Nancy, you want to take the first shot at this? <laughs> I feel that that was directed at me, Ryan. Radio <laughs> appropriate. We are most nervous okay. about you, Nancy. <laughs> I know. I can, and there's a good reason. Because I'm of an age where I do not care. Oh, uh, Ryan, this, this is an invention. I wanted to shark tank it here this morning <laughs> with your listeners. And I had an idea. I had a little invention that I thought would sell, which is social distancing toothpaste. 
It is garlic flavored and it oh. is called Back the Hell Up. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't called something else, but I, I had to bleep myself, okay? Thank you yeah. for the public radio friendly joke. Dave? <laughs> well, I, I haven't I haven't written a new joke while I've been awake, but in my dream two nights ago, I went to an open mic. But that's how much we're missing live comedy is I'm going to open mics in my dreams. Wow. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, and there, and it was poorly attended, so it was true to life. So that was nice. Um, but I but I got up and this is the joke I told, which I have never like written down while awake, but I woke up and I was like, what was, where did that come from? And the joke was, did you know that Swiss cheese gets its name because whenever I make a sandwich, it stays out of it. That was, that's the oh, whole thing. <laughs> I like it. Oh, because it's Swiss. It remains neutral. Yeah. It's a, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, a neutral, it's a neutrality. It's a neutrality. Cheese that's, dairy joke, guys. That's the best that my subconscious can do. I I would like to say too that you know I love stress. I think I'm an adrenaline addict. I think a lot of comedians are. Maybe a lot of people. If you run late, are you someone who runs late? You you might be an adrenaline addict. But I find adrenaline uh, fuels fuels my funny bone. And I was thinking, well, when I was thinking about my economic situation, you know, I'm a former nurse, and I actually may still have a license, may or may not. I don't want to commit to that on, on the radio, but I will say, and I may be dusting it off again and getting back out there, but that oh. is a last resort because, you know, I got out of nursing to save lives. <laughs> but my point is, <laughs> I was thinking, now, what, what would I be qualified to do at this point in my career that I've been so, I'm such a rusty nurse, and I thought foot care, because, you know, the toenails are growing out there, kids. No, <laughs> who's cutting the toenails during a crisis? And I thought I could do door-to-door foot care, but you have to have a cat, because you have to have a cat door. If you could put your foot past <laughs> cat door, I could come by and do some healing on your toenails uh, with my Playtex gloves and my mask. I love the I image that it's creates a... of a, uh, yeah, a mani-pedi through the pet door for distancing. Yes, yeah, small dogs, mm-hmm. small dogs and or cats only. I'm sorry, but a large dog door, that's a little too much cross-contamination. you got to have a small dog or kitty. Or kitty. Um, or kitty, yeah. David- I like visual jokes, too, that cartoon. I sort of cartoon my pain. That's, that's one of the things I teach. I teach kids. I teach the kids. I call everybody kids now. Oh, I love this idea. You cartoon the pain. Just say a few more words about that. Yeah, anytime I'm feeling... I, I'm really... I'm a very attuned with my anxiety, which I... I'm hardwired for anxiety. And by the way, I was raised by a nurse who's hot as hand washing. I've lived with this fear my whole life. Like I've been a bit of a, I've been called a germaphobe, but I like to say germ aware. I'm a germ aware person. I've also worked in hospice care. So I've been real aware of my mortality from my twenties on. And just, I live with that right in my face all the time. But when I'm feeling anxious, particularly like when things are up right now and out of my control as a codependent, I like to control things. So I, I tend to cartoon, what is my real fear here? You know, and I, I make a little cartoon about it. And it is my, when I get triggered, I, I jump to the cartoon and I encourage people, exaggerate your fear to the point of a cartoon oh. and you'll be amazed the empowerment you feel. Well, thanks guys for being with us. I appreciate it. Comedians Nancy Norton of Boulder and David Rodriguez of Fort Collins. 
That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're tuned to CPR News.